So in this time of COVID and really the tumult in St. Paul and Minneapolis, uh, really an issue of hope. When we talk about hope this morning out of Jeremiah 32. Now in the context of Jeremiah, there's a lot of judgment in our lives. We might wonder, well, man, there's disease, there's social upheaval. This may be judgment on our nation, you know. Uh, closer to home, sometimes we have personal pain. You, maybe you had a struggle with obedience in eating or you know, goofing around too much gaming or sexual sin or you know, binge spending or something like this. And, and when you, you do that and you realize, oh, Lord, I'm sorry. And, and there's a sense of, oh, you know, where is, where is my hope? What's God going to do? Where's the hope? And so also in Jeremiah's day, you may recall if you've been following this series that Jeremiah has been preaching judgment for over 23 years, and then judgment is at the door. The Babylonians have surrounded the city for over a year. Things are getting desperate. We know from our vantage point, they're one year away from the destruction of life as they know it. So what's he going to say now? (laughs) I told you so? Uh, No. Ironically, when it's darkest, then comes Jeremiah Chapter 30 through 33, messages of hope and restoration. Wow. Read with me a snippet of this today, Jeremiah 32, verses 38 to 41. God says, they will be my people and I will be their God. I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them and I will inspire them to fear me so they will never turn away from me. I'll rejoice in doing them good and will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and all my soul, says the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that sometimes you do bring discipline, judgment, challenge, But your basic heart, your fundamental heart is to do good and to bless and strengthen our lives. So, Father, as we look at these scriptures today, open our minds and hearts. And especially, I pray, open our hearts that we could hear your voice, hear not only the objective word of God, but that word you're speaking in us, Lord. Open us in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this is great news. A little outline, big picture outline of this section. Very simple, each chapter. Chapter 30, Judah and northern Israel will be restored and be politically free. Wow. Chapter 31, you may have heard of the new covenant, unified worship between Judah and Israel, rest in God, ability to love God because there's a new covenant now and forgiveness. And then verse uh, chapter 32, what we just read, this hope of not just a new covenant getting forgiven, but, but actually being transformed in how we live and what we do. And then chapter 33 kind of puts it all together. Restoration, forgiveness, the Messiah who's called the righteous branch there. And even the Levites are restored. The Messiah rules, there's forgiveness and peace. Well, you look at these verses, you think, this is great. But if you're like me, you think about it and you think, They're too good. (laughs) There's a little too much here. Uh, This is not just restored Israel. This is not just a new covenant. I mean, like we just do God's will all the time. This is heaven, (laughs) right? This is a complete restoration. 
And so the challenge of these verses is looking, how are they fulfilled? What's the process here? So certainly there's a very partial beginning uh, after these 70 years of exile, which they are one year away from where we're reading today. Uh, they have 70 years of exile in, in the, in the uh, land of Babylon. Babylon is actually taken over by the Persians and they're allowed to come back home 70 years later. But what happens in that restoration, yeah, they get a little political freedom, a few people you know, get right with God, but it is not what is promised in these verses. And even with the new covenant in Jesus Christ, we read of things in this passage that are so profound that, that really it seems like they're only fulfilled when Jesus comes again. Now, some kind of try to parse it up. Uh, they call it dispensationally. So they'll say, well, you know, ethnic Israel gets some promises and the church gets other promises. But I think that's, maybe that's just too complicated for my brain. But in my opinion, how I would say it is this. It maybe began in a small way in the restoration of Judah, but really this begins in the new covenant, but it's not really fulfilled until Jesus comes again. So I'll argue for that interpretation. I'll help you see that. So let's do the deep dive now in Jeremiah 32. The historical context, look at chapter 32, verse 1. It says, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah. And so Zedekiah only ruled for 11 years and he takes over right after uh, the first siege or second siege and uh, the Babylonians put him in charge. He later rebels, bad idea. And so this is one year before Judah is devastated by Babylon. Uh, they're already surrounded by the Babylonians. So as we read these words, they're surrounded by uh, this radically strong army. They're in trouble. They know it. And so God gets this word. Uh, another little background fact in verse 3, we find out that because Jeremiah has been telling them this is God's will, just surrender to the Babylonians, they think he's some kind of, you know, uh, a compromiser, that he's kind of the... Uh, in, in cahoots with the Babylonians, so they put him in prison. So he is suffering in prison right now. And then, uh, we won't read it, you can read it later, but in chapter, uh, verses 6 to 15, God tells Jeremiah, uh, actually, everything's falling apart. I want you to go buy a field. Oh, really? And so, kind of miraculously, he gets set free from prison. We'll just read verse 15, the last verse of this whole little incident. He buys a piece of property from his first cousin right? And the guy just happens to be there. Everything works out, right? Kind of a supernatural thing. But anyway, verse 15, for this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. So he just wants Jeremiah to buy this field as a symbol of hope. Jeremiah's not going to be there, right? Seven years later. But he's like, you buy this field and you let the people know, again, there will be agriculture and families and life will happen again. You know, sometimes that's what we need to know when life falls apart. Maybe your life falls apart personally, like I did, losing a spouse. Or, or you look around these riots, you think, Are we, is this the late 60s again? Is society coming apart? Is this Rodney King riots all over again? What's happening? And we need a word of hope that God is doing something, right? But he does say, later in that chapter, again, we won't read it, but verses 16 to 25 that first, before this restoration, God is going to judge their sin. And we like to think, well, yeah, that's old covenant. Now Jesus died for our sins. No. When a land or a people 
disobey God, consequences occur. There's brokenness. There's destruction. If you're watching carefully, you'll see it. But then we go back to our passage. And we'll start a little early. Look at verse 36. See, what's happened, we got, now we've got people, you know, they're getting negative. <laughs> Losing hope. They, you, the people, are saying about this city, by the sword, famine, and plague, it will be handed over to the king of Babylon. But this is what the Lord, the king, God of Israel says. I will surely gather them from all the lands where I banish them in my furious anger and great wrath. I will bring them back to this place and let them live in safety. Now listen real carefully as we continue. Verse 38, relationship. They will be my people and I will be their God. I, w- I will give them singleness of heart and manner of life so that they will always fear me for their good and the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them. And I will give to them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. That's the covenant. Now, it's another expression of the new covenant in chapter 31. But notice three things. Verses 37 and 41 God will restore them after the exile. So the restoration was a part of the fulfillment of this. But verse 38, relationship with God. And then verses 39 and 40, transformation. See, we'll talk in a week or two about Jeremiah 31. And you know the verses, right? I'll make a new covenant with you and forgiveness of sins. And and that's, crucial. That's the foundation. But this passage, you'll notice, is not just about forgiveness. It's about change. And and this this is the thing the American church has lost. We understand forgiveness, and that's right. And forgiveness is the foundation. It comes first, chapter 31. But forgiven people are not merely forgiven. God has a plan for your life. God changes us. But how does God change us? Well, notice in the passage, how many times did you hear, I will, God speaking, I will do this, I will do that, I will do that. God changes us with gifts. The first gift that changes us is reverence. So indulge me as I give you a very literal translation of verses 39 and 40. I will give to them one heart and one way, namely, to fear me all their days for good for them and their children after them. I will make with them an eternal covenant which I will not take back from after them to do good to them. And I will put in their hearts to fear me so that they might never turn from me. What a promise. One heart, one way, and it's reverence for God, the fear of God. Again, in verse 40, goodness and fear. In Proverbs, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And what is it? Well, it's not being afraid of God. So, so 
we, we often use, I think, correctly, the word reverence. So what is reverence? Think about this with me. Who is God? He's almighty. He's all-knowing. And he's all-righteous. He is the almighty God who spoke and everything came into existence. More profoundly for accountability, he is the all-knowing God who knows your thoughts, your secret deeds, your true motives, why you do things. And someday you will stand before God and you'll give an account for your life. He knows everything. He's also all-righteous. So there's no excuses or misunderstanding. Someday, each will give account for our lives. And when that is in your soul and you know it, that's reverence. It's not being afraid of God. We love him. But it's, there's going to be no conning the almighty God. There's going to be, you can give your friends excuses sometimes. Well, you know, I was, I was tired. So crabby. Snapped at you. Sorry. That's not really an apology. That's like an excuse. Right? God loves us. But I want you to, to see this. Better to see this now than later. All of the little cons, the dodges, all the things you, you, you rationalize in your head, realize God knows all of that. Don't waste your life. So what is our response to this? God has the right and power to hold us accountable. That awareness begins wisdom. I encourage you, deliberately think about this. Cultivate an awareness. Lord, you are here right now. You hear my words, and more importantly and deeply, you know my thoughts and motives. So, Lord, would you bring that awareness in my soul? Would you purify my heart and motives? Would you help me to walk in a way that truly brings glory and credit to your name? Prepare now to give account for your life by seeking to do good. So the first gift that brings change is reverence. The other gift that brings change, another gift that brings change is goodness, God's goodness. Look at verse 39. Again, remember, I will give them singleness. So, you know, yes, it's a reverence for God. He's saying, I will give them singleness of heart and action. So this is not you going, okay, boy, I got to get up with a, you know, I got to have a bunch of disciplines and I got to, you know, I'm going to really try hard. This is, saying yes to God. I will give you singleness of heart and action. In verse 40, I will do good to them. I will do good to them. All right? I will never stop doing good to them. So get this deep in your spirit. God wants to give to you. Now, now here's the deal. If I tell you God wants to bless you, before I tell you to fear God, you're going to mess it up. Just how it is. 
But if I have a reverence for God and I'm aware that I'm going to explain to God why I've lived my life the way I have, then it's safe to tell you God wants to give to you because then you're going to get it right. This is actually the key to breaking temptation, right? So once you know deeply that God is for you, all you've got to do in temptation is say, okay, here's the temptation. What's the self-centered Craig part? You know, well, actually it says put to death the simple nature. So, you know, (laughs) kill that thing, right? What's the underlying God-given desire that God actually wants to fulfill? God is good and he really does love you. So the main thing in temptation is figuring out what part is my flesh and what part is something that actually God is trying to break through in my spirit the right way. Once you know deeply in your spirit that God is good and wants to do good for you, God's not trying to cheat you, then God will give you good until you're sick of being bad. God sanctifies us that way. He gives us the good until we're like, why am I even messing in the mud, right? So clear your head, get out of the fog and look for the lasting goodness in your life. That's what God wants to give you. Satan's trying to steal it. Say it. Say, God, I want your goodness. I don't want the junk. I believe you are giving me good because the second gift that changes us is goodness. Well, there's one more gift that changes us and that's faithfulness. Verse 39, the gift is to fear me all their days. I will make them an eternal covenant that I will never revoke. Uh, I think I gave you a literal translation, but I want you to see this. This is so, so powerful. Uh, I wish I had the Hebrew in front of me, but I will, <laughs> I will make them an eternal covenant, which I will not take back from after them. I mean, it's like really, he's, he's really making the point, right? It's an eternal covenant and I will never take it back from them in any way. I mean, he's just overstating it that this is, he is absolutely faithful and reliable. It's all gift, but it's also God will put it in our hearts and he'll never turn away. He'll, oh no, excuse me. He puts in our hearts that we will never turn away. Let me just say that again. I feel like I'm messing it up. Uh, NIV says, I will inspire them to fear me so they will never turn away from me. Now, here's the key to sanctification. You need to say yes. You can fight, fight it. New Testament teaches that. You got to count yourself dead to sin and alive to God. You got to live by the power of the Spirit, live by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the sinful nature. But it's still God. He's saying, I will do it. I will inspire them to reverence me so they will never turn away from me. This is the work of sanctification. As we grow in reverence and we grow in understanding God's goodness, then the faithfulness gets built into us so that, hallelujah, right? We're walking with him and we're walking consistently in Christ. Now, how do we look at this? Certainly in Christ, we are secure, but that's not what he's talking about here. God is working in us to make us those who will never turn away from him, even for a moment. That it's just our life is to live in him. Our life is to be with him. That is the work of sanctification. When I never turn away from his glory, but I just choose it 
constantly and daily. And again, connected to what we just said. Why? Because both the reverence and the trust in his goodness is complete. It's not the only scripture passage that teaches us. There's others in Zephaniah, but it's the idea that when we reverence him and we really trust it just seems so silly. I guess I was like sitting here preaching like, okay, come on, this is so obvious. But, but we need to hear that. We need to get this in our souls that God doesn't want to cheat you. And so when you revere him and you realize he really wants to bring good, you've got no reason to sin. You've got no reason to go back to the mud. God is doing this in you right now. That is what he is doing. So say yes. Bow before him in reverence. Say yes, trust that he's giving you good. And then your heart will never turn away. That's the road we're on, on the road to glory. God is working faithfulness in you through his faithfulness to you. The experience of God's reliability builds your reliability. Again, God is working faithfulness in you through his faithfulness to you. And as you experience God's reliability, it increases your reliability. The final gift that changes us is faithfulness. So God changes us by giving us gifts. See this. Reverence is a gift. It's a gift I'm asking you to receive and to cultivate, knowing that one day you'll give account to have a reverence before him. Goodness, God's gifts are good. Trust that. Faithfulness, God is bonding you to him. There are people here in the Twin Cities in the last two weeks who have killed, looted, and deliberately created unrest. And they will give account to God. They are missing the meaning and the goodness of life. But we know better, right? I hope so. Because we, we too will give account to God. Today, would you bow down with joy and trust in him and let him make you faithful? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We grieve over the events in our city, but we thank you that in everything, you are calling out a people of your very own, transforming us to make us like you, not through our greatness or goodness or our strength, but as we bow before you in reverence, as we trust in your goodness and have a good life in Christ, and as we grow in faithfulness because of your faithfulness. We thank you, Lord. Do your work transform and change. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.